you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we are coming to the end of our two-year journey in this amazing gospel. I'm sad to see our tour reaching its final, ultimate destination today. This is our 86th and the last message on this book that so glorifies our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this final message, I could not help but to go back to the first introductory message that I preached on Sunday, the 9th of January, 2022. In my introductory sermon, I gave you an overview of the gospel. The gospel of John is a selective, symbolic eyewitness, that's the key word, of the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is actually written so that you may believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life. I also quoted from one theologian where he says the gospel of John is like a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. I do hope you experience that as we sail through this book over the past two years. On one level, a child can understand and respond to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. I know that we all memorized it when we were in the Sunday school. But on another level, scholars have written articles and even books that wrestle with some of the issues in the Gospel of John. So wherever you are spiritually, there is something for you in this book. If you have never investigated who Jesus is or put your trust in him, this Gospel is written for you so that you will believe and have eternal life. If you are a new Christian, there is so much in this gospel to strengthen your faith. If you have been a Christian for many years, there are deep pools for you to dive into. So church, this morning as I deliver the final message, I sincerely believe that each one of you can look back and say, yes, it is for me. And that you have genuinely benefited from this series at a very personal level. If ever you want to listen to the sermon on any of the text, I would strongly encourage you to to do so. So please visit our website, is scfellowship.org. You can listen to just the audio sermon on podcast or Spotify. Download and listen while you are driving Or you can watch the complete video recording of the service. If you need help, please ask our tech support and they'll gladly help you. You can use it to share this good news with others by listening together with them. Last week we spoke about serving God. And here's a vital tool to use to minister to others and point people to Christ. Today we are on the very last chapter of this amazing Gospel of John, and as John wraps this great book, 
he is once again pointing the readers to the purpose for which it was written. Church, the purpose for the Gospel of John, we looked at a few weeks ago in John chapter 20. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is summing up by drawing our attention to the God's sovereignty, calling us to believe in it. And that's the title I've given for today's message. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21, and we'll be picking from where we left last Sunday. We are looking at the last eight verses from verses 18 to 25, which was read to you just a short while ago. So let me give you the context here. Jesus has restored Peter publicly and called him to remain on mission. And what was the mission? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter is grieved when the Lord repeatedly asked him, do you love me more than this? So Peter confessed that the Lord knows him and knows his heart and knows that he loves him. But as we unpack this closing portion of the text, I really had difficulty putting a message together. Because you'll notice that John mentioned several things which seem thematically unconnected. Let me bring it to you a summary of what we heard. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus predicts Peter's future, including how he will die. Then in verses 20 to 22, Peter asks Jesus about John's future and receives a very polite, it's none of your business reply from the Lord. And in verse 23, what we see is that John corrects a misunderstanding that was circulating regarding Jesus' return and his death. And in verse 24 and 25, there is a testimony to John's trustworthiness as a witness, an acknowledgement that John has left out of his gospel many things, many things that Jesus did. So as you examine this very closely and carefully, the theological thread that ties these four parts is the theme of believing in the sovereignty of God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So here the Lord lets Peter know that Peter's professed love for him will be tested. Will be tested. As Peter grows old, he is going to face what? Martyrdom. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. The key lesson for us in this section of the scripture, if I have to sum it up in one line, is to follow Jesus, we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. Can we read this together? To follow Jesus, we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. Because he knows both what is best for us and controls the events of our lives for his good purpose. In this section, after commissioning Peter to feed his sheep, Jesus tells Peter what is going to happen to him, actually the cost of being his disciple. Right now, Peter has the freedom to go wherever he wants, do whatever he likes, but soon it will not be the case. This must be very painful for Peter, what he's about to hear from the Lord. I want you to put yourself in Peter's position now. 
you have just overcome your greatest failure with the Lord. And you have been reconciled and restored. And you think all is well and you are in for a new and a happy start. And if, it was, if I was Peter, I would be singing, I have got joy, joy, joy in my heart. You know this song? Beautiful song, isn't it? That's what I would be singing. In Peter's heart and mind, there is so much joy. Finally, my guilt is taken away. I am all set and ready to go. I am cleansed of all my charges. I am reconciled by the Lord. Church, here's something I want to tell you. And I do that, I would encourage you to do. Every time I read, meditate, or study the Word of God, I try to place myself in the narrative to experience the emotions of the characters. So if I was there with Peter, and if I could have at that time Keith and the worship team with me, I was thinking about this song that I would be singing. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. A day I will never forget. After I had wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Does that fit Peter a lot? And look at the second one. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling. With joy I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Very appropriate song for Peter to sing. Isn't it? It's a beautiful song. Then... While he was high in his spirit, the Lord puts a bombshell. Let's read verse 18. Jesus saying to Peter, most assuredly. You know what he's saying? Peter, affirmatively, truly, truly, listen to what I'm going to tell you now. I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself. Girded simply means you dressed yourself and you walked where you wished yes you could gallivant wherever you wanted to go Peter when you are young but when you are old Jesus is saying yes Peter this is what you are going to face what is it you will stretch out your hands another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go so what is Jesus saying here Peter, when you get old, someone is going to exert power over you that will bring about your death. That's what Jesus is saying, telling to Peter. Peter, stretch out your hands. The, word, the phrase that you are looking at here, Pete, stretch out your hands in this passage of scripture, was an idiom in the Roman Empire meaning for crucifixion. The phrase, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish is an idiom for being led to his execution. So Jesus is describing the outcome or the cost to Peter for following Jesus, and Peter got it right now. Imagine how fretful Peter would have been. If it was you, how would you feel? It's like the doctor giving you the worst news and where this would lead, your current sickness. A death sentence is passed. And now you await the day for it to be carried out. So naturally you are terrified, you are anxious, you are shocked, you are lost, and you are helpless. Church with such doom looming in the air, the only way one can live calmly in such an anxiety-producing world is to trust in the sovereignty of God.
is to trust in the sovereignty of God. Meaning that he is the Lord of over creation. God has control over everything. This anxiety. So Peter is summoned to say, I do not know what the future holds. But I know who holds my future. Listen to what more Jesus is saying to Peter. Verse number 19. Then he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. I'll come back to this in a minute. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, read with me, follow me, follow me. Yes, Peter, you will surely be crucified for your faith if you follow me, yet follow me. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. You will be crucified if you do that, but yet me. How do you do that? Yet the history tells us, church, that Peter did follow Christ to the end. Not only Peter embraced this challenge from the Lord, he also encouraged other believers also. How can I say this? We are not going to go to the passage, but if you look at Peter's first epistle, now this is how he encouraged the elect exiles of the dispersion of Asia Minor. After telling them who they are in Christ, then he reminds them of the reward at the end of their journey. Look at this passage. 1 Peter 1, 1.5 Who are kept by the power of God. What does that mean? The sovereignty of God. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed when? In the last time. In the last time, in essence, Peter is telling to the dispersed elect exiles. You know what that means? Who, who, are, who are these people? They are the persecuted believers for following Christ who were scattered around Asia Minor. They were following Christ. Because of that, they were persecuted. They were scattered. They are exiled. They are refugees. Peter is telling them we have to persistently follow him. Peter is telling. By believing in the sovereignty of God who has reserved a reward for us. And what is the reward? Glorification. Glorification. So keep on keeping on. That's what Peter is saying. So what is the life application we take from this church? The following Jesus does not guarantee an easy life. And it does not guarantee a peaceful death. The Bible has many examples of faithful serv servants or saints who suffer terrible persecution and painful deaths. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that the cost of following Christ to some strong believers. Now, he, listen to this, please. The writer of Hebrews, he says this, Still others at trial of mocking and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. It's going to get from bad to worse. Come with me. They were stoned. These are believers. They were sawn in two. These are believers were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Church, this is persecution. Not when you can't go to the downtown Toronto and speak of the word of God, somebody is scolding at you. That's not persecution. This is persecution. These are some of our forefathers of the faith. Church, we have the scriptures in our hands, because they followed Christ to the end. 
The cost of following Christ is real and painful. But they receive the eternal reward in heaven. Well, the Lord tells you up front to count the cost of following him. Another observation that we see in this verse 19, I said I'll get back to you, get back to this. Look at this now. This is spoke signifying what? By what death, what? what? By what death he would glorify God. Church, all of us are going to die one day. All of us. So we need to determine in advance how to glorify God in and through our death. In and through our death. There are many Christian martyrs we can think of. Let me mention two of them that are very near and dear to my heart. One is a, a, a saint by the name of Polycarp. Some of you may have heard about him. He lived in the early first century. In 160 AD, he was the, he was the disciple of Apostle John. And he was the Bishop of Smyrna. At the age of 86, the pro-council attempted to coax him and, and, and into offering sacrifices to Caesar. And here is the historical narrative about Polycarp. Now, the, so the pro-council said to Polycarp, take oath, I will let you go. Just revile or condemn Christ. This was the response he gave at the age of 86 in AD 160. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul then proceeded to threaten the elderly man with lions and fire. This is a historical record I am talking about, church. In response to these torments, Polycarp's reply was this. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour at most. You must not know about the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you wasting time? Kill me in whatever way you see fit. Church, this is the cost of following Christ. The only way to endure it is to trust in the sovereignty of God. The history records that the fire was lit and the flame blazed furiously. The fire shaped itself. This is historical record, not this picture, but the historical record. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like a sail of a ship when filled with the wind and formed a circle around the body of the martyr. He refused to be chained. He refused to be nailed. He said, I'm not going to move anywhere. Eventually, those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by fire. They commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. By this death, Polycarp glorified God. The other martyr is William Tyndale, known as the father of the English Bible. Tyndale became convicted that the Bible alone should determine the practices and doctrines of the church that all believers should be able to read the Bible in their own language. Tyndale began working on New Testament directly from Greek in 1523. But he was prevented by the Church of England and the authorities in the UK. So Tyndale fled England to translate the Bible in the continent. In 1534, Tyndale was betrayed by a false friend near Brussels. 
arrested by imperial forces and thrown into prison. After a year and a half in prison, he was brought to trial for heresy. He was accused of maintaining that faith alone justifies. In August 1536, he was condemned, and on this day, October 6, 1536, he was strangled and his body burnt at the stake. His last prayer as he died. Lord, open King England, King of England's eyes. The prayer was answered in part. When three years later, in 1539, Henry VIII required every parish in England to make a copy of the English Bible available to his parishioners. Church, by their death, these two saints, Polycarp and William Tyndale, and there are many, brought glory to God. It is the legacy that they left behind. So you may ask, Pastor, how do I bring glory to God in death? How can I do it? So let me ask you the question. What is the legacy you are leaving behind? How will you be known by your parents, by your families, by your friends, by your colleagues, by your communities when you're gone? Would they see you as someone who owned three houses and two flats, a convertible and a cruise ship? or a CEO of a company, or top-notch professionals, or you're floating in wealth, how will you be known by the Lord? Because you don't take anything with you. I told you before, you do, a hearse does not follow to the grave. You leave everything behind. It is the legacy that you leave behind. What is the leg legacy that you leave behind? Will you be known as someone who followed Jesus diligently to the end? Church, the way to glorify God in death is to follow him diligently while we live. It means bowing before him as the rightful Lord of all. It means seeking his will for the direction of our lives. It means that submitting to that will even before you know it'll be, what it'll be. It means prompt obedience to his commands. Then our eyes are on Christ. Our focus is on following Christ. Then you will not be looking for accolades and accomplishments and admirers in your ministry, you'll be like the saints of the old. Embracing the promises of God, you live like strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See how the Hebrew writer describes these saints. And look at Hebrew 11, chapter 13, uh, 11, verse 13. These, referring to who? The men of faith. All died in faith, not having received the promises. They have not tasted the promises on this side, on this earth. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Their trust was in the sovereignty of God. The death of the saints brought glory to God. For their eyes were focused on God. They followed him diligently to the end without expecting any rewards on earth. For they, are, for they are kept in heaven for them. So church, the way you encounter trials and tribulations or even death will bring glory to God or even shame him. As a believer, when you encounter ongoing suffering with gospel hope and joy, knowing in whom you have believed, 
meditating on eternal promises, applying gospel truths to drive praise, and submitting to and resting in God's sovereign care through the Holy Spirit, you will glorify God. So the first lesson that we learn is believing in the sovereignty of God. Follow him diligently to the end. Let your legacy speak his glory. That leads me to the second lesson as we look at verse, verse number 20. Let's read. It says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the, at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Who is writing this? John the Apostle. So in verse 20, Apostle John identifies the third person as he himself. So we are looking at three people in these conversations. There is Jesus, there is Peter, and there is John. Now look at verse 21 to 22. John writes this way. Peter seeing said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Seeing whom? Seeing John. What about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So when Jesus spoke about the death Peter would face, when he follows Jesus, naturally, Peter, Peter would have been disturbed. I don't want this. I don't want to die. Have you heard this phrase, uh, church? Misery loves company. Have you heard it? You know what that means? You know, that means that people who are unhappy may get some consolation from knowing that others are unhappy too. Now, maybe if the Lord has said to Peter, yes, John is facing the same fatality at the end of his life, Peter would have been somewhat consoled. Maybe, I don't know. I don't want to pass judgment on that poor man. We really don't know whether Peter asked out of curiosity or concern for John or the need to compare himself with John. But whatever the reason is, Jesus in effect says, none of your business, what I do with John, your business is to follow me. So we can learn three lessons from this very quickly. Number one, it is Jesus who decides how one serves him and when each one dies. It's not up to you, it's not up to me. Jesus determined how Peter would serve him and when and how Peter would die. Jesus determined how John would serve him and how he would die. And Jesus determines how you would serve him and how you would die. That's the first lesson you can take from that. And the second lesson that you can take from this is Jesus uses, he's the one who uses the different personalities of each person for his purpose and his glory. You know, as you read this, you can see that Peter and John has very different personalities, but God used them both. Now, we know that Peter, Peter was natural leader of the twelve. He often spoke where he should held his tongue and thought more carefully, but before he opened his mouth. But he never did that. He had a verbal diarrhea. But when Jesus walked the disciples' feet, Peter was the one to protest. Don't wash my legs and my hands. He is the one who whacked off that servant's ear. When the Romans cohort, they came to arrest Jesus. Imagine, put yourself in that position. 
he, he, at the moment of instant, he took the sword and knocked off, uh, cut off his ear. The Roman cohort could have easily chopped his head off then and there. Peter was a man of action again without thinking carefully. But that was Peter. But John, on the other hand, was more thoughtful and introverted. John often referred to himself as he does in our text here, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was close to Jesus in a more quiet manner than Peter was. We see these two men's personalities when they went to the empty tomb. You remember we looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. John stood outside peering in, but Peter rushed by him and went inside. Both of them went to see the same thing. John saw from there the grave clothes lying there, and what? He believed. Peter went away wondering about what he had seen. Can you see the two personalities? Then when the risen Savior provided the miraculous catch of fish we looked at uh, last Sunday or Sunday before, John did not run to Jesus. He believed he recognized him. But Peter impulsively jumped in the water and get to the shore first. So they were two different men. But God was pleased to use both of them in his service. Church, listen. In every church, we need a Peter. We need a John. While God sanctifies our personalities, knocking off our rough edges as we mature us in Christ, he doesn't change our basic traits. Introverts grow into godly introverts. Extroverts grow into godly extroverts. Both are okay. And the church needs them. No one is superior to the other. Before Paul met Christ, he was a zealous man for purpose, persecuting the church. After he met Christ, he was still a zealous man of purpose, but boldly preaching the gospel, even if he had been stoned and imprisoned. The Lord takes you as you are when you come to him and use you in the most appropriate manner in his vineyard. If you are a musician who loves music, the Lord will use you to sing for him. If you are a teacher in your profession, the Lord would use you to teach in the vineyard. If you are an accountant, God would, hold, God would use you to hold the finances in order in the house of God. If you are a lawyer, God would use your skills to protect the legal boundaries of the church. The list can go on. So no one can say, I cannot follow him. I cannot serve him. So you don't have to deny your personality to serve the Lord Church. But you do have to allow him to build the fruit of the Spirit into your personality as you grow in him. We need a Keith. We need a Roy. We need an Andrew. We need Daryl. The list can go on. We need all these individuals. Each person's ministry is unique and is equally acknowledged by the Lord. While this is helpful to learn from those who are different than we are, church, hear me out, it's not profitable to compare our ministries to others. Let me repeat that. 
while it's helpful to learn from those who are different than ours, it's not profitable to compare our ministries to others. Should you ever compare with another person in the church, the Lord is rebuking you and saying, that's, none of, that's my business, not yours. You follow me. You follow me. So in God's kingdom, no one is superior to another person. They're all the same. As a church, we may look at another and say, why does God bless their ministries as he does, but not ours? As a pastor or ministry worker, you can easily look at men like John MacArthur and John Piper and say, why can't I have the same impact in my church and make this a mega church? The answer is simple. The Lord is telling us, what is that for you? You follow me. You follow me. While I truly rejoice how God has used these men, my prayer is and should be, Lord, you are sovereign over whom you use and how you use them, but help me to be faithful in following you. To be faithful in following you. My, my prayer church, I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, from the day one I was called to the ministry, God used me like the shoe salesman Edward Kimball who invested in D.L. Moody. In my own little corner, help me to be the light that shines your glory. And I'm sure the Lord has used me to that here at SCF, even in our ministry in Sri Lanka. My prayer even today is that I want to continue to be the shoe salesman. For the mood is that the Lord would raise up within SEF and abroad in the future. There may be Moody's and MacArthur's and Pipers growing within SEF. But if I'm faithfully following Christ as the shoe salesman, that's what I'm called to do. I'm contented with that for what I could do within SEF. It will be wrong for me to expect the budding leaders of SCF to be like me. They are different. Their calling is different. The future is different. After my time, the Lord may have a different plan for them. The Lord is telling me, don't worry about that. It's none of your business. It's none of your business. It convicted me so deeply. Because I'm very protective of my property. I'm protective of this church. But the Lord is telling me, that's none of your business. You follow me. Your job is to be as faithful as the shoe salesman. My choice is to use you as I see fit. You can learn from the Moody's and the MacArthur's and the Piper's. But if I want to use you as I used the shoe salesman, that's my business. Be faithful in what you do. Brighten the corner where I have placed you. I don't know the old folks of my age might know this hymn. There's an old hymn, beautiful hymn, that's too old for the young people, generation to even know and sing about this. That's why I didn't ask him to sing it today. But my mother used to sing at all time. It's written by a granddaughter of a Methodist minister. Some of you may have known this. Brighten the corner where you are. Brighten the corner where you are. Someone far from harbor you may guide across the bar. Brighten the corner where you are. Do not wait until some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to shed your light afar. To the many duties ever near you, now be true. 
brighten the corner where you are. Challenge to your son, learn this and we're going to sing it one day. So the second lesson, Daryl, please, I need this song one day. The second lesson we learn from this is this. Follow him faithfully. Brighten the corner where you are. That leads me to the next verse, verse number 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that his disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that for you? Church, hear me out. John is, what is John saying here? John wrote this to correct a mistaken rumor circulating in the early church. Namely, that he wouldn't die before the Lord returned. John knew about this rumor before he died and wrote this to correct before the faith of some would be shaken after he died. Because they thought that Jesus had to return before John died. Even today, people get carried away with mistaken claims that Jesus will return by a certain date. I'm not sure, sure if you recall in the 80s, someone published a booklet and I read it, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Have you heard that? Some of you are not born at that time. 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Peter predicted that in the last days, scoffers would mock believers saying, where is the promise of his coming? But twice in this passage alone, we see that John assures Jesus is coming. We don't predict as we don't know. We may feel like shooting in the dark and wonder for how long, God, how long am I going to follow you? So the only way we can follow Christ, we ought to believe in the sovereignty of God and his promised return. Because for it is not true, our faith is in vain and our following is futile. So the third lesson that you learn from this church is that follow him in anticipation of his imminent return to the end. Now John concludes by saying this to the believers in the sovereignty of God. Look at this. Is, John is saying the sovereignty of God is foundational on, on trusting in his word. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies. Who is the disciple? Apostle John. Who testifies of these things. I told you the eyewitness accounts of these things and wrote these things. And we know that this, his, sorry, we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen, it says. What do we take from this? In verse 24, John is saying that the things that you read in this gospel is a narrative from the eyewitness. From the eyewitness who testifies to the accuracy of the texts. So in other words, these are eyewitness accounts and not heresy. It's not hearsay. So John is speaking to the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. Wow, what a blessing it is, church. Further, in verse 25, John concludes that Jesus did so many more things that were not recorded in this gospel or any other gospel accounts. It speaks of the sovereignty of God. Essentially means that he has the power, wisdom, and, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. 
John echoes what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. What you see in the scripture is a glimpse into the vastness. Paul writes this. And mystery of God the Father. His knowledge and plan surpasses all of our understanding and capacity. So, but John says these things are all that we need for our faith. What you see in the scripture is enough for us, for our faith, for our living, for us to follow him. It is with this faith that will drive you to follow Jesus to the end. So the exhortation is to follow Jesus all the way to death. It is this faith is all you need to do that. That's the last lesson that we learn from this church. Follow him by faith to the end. Trusting in the inherent and infallible word of God. Church, as I conclude this, let me leave this challenge with you. It is your decision to follow him diligently to the end. By the legacy you leave behind, your life and death would bring glory to him. It is your decision to follow him faithfully to the end. By committing all you have and all you are to his vineyard, without comparing with others, brighten the corner where you are. It's your decision to follow him in anticipation of his imminent return to the end. Knowing that when he comes, he will reward you for your faithfulness. It's your decision to follow him by faith to the end. By trusting in the inherent and infallible word of God. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Church, believing in the sovereignty of God. And you follow him diligently, faithfully in anticipation of his imminent return by faith. Even if you do not see the rewards here on earth, you can be like the saints of the old, singing, while we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Worship team, would you come please? Isn't that a beautiful song to sing? When we all get to heaven. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when we are traveling, days are over. Not a shadow, not a sigh. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be.